You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 140 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnen and David Howe. Before we begin, listeners of a Life in Ruins podcast, we have heard you on Reddit and Instagram. And we are going to make some changes to the show. One, if you're listening, you probably noticed that our cover art has changed. That was voted on over a year ago and we've we've done it. But that being said, so we went out to Reddit in mid-December, asked how we could help change the show. We got some constructive criticism from Redditors on r slash archaeology. We also got just some pure fucking slander. Um, so someone commented on the recent episode with just Connor and David and said that we had used the N word. We had not, we checked, everyone checked and the kid couldn't back Nor himself up. Nor was there up. one part of the, where we would have said it. Yeah. The uh, whole thing was, it was just ridiculous. So then we decided to reach out to our followers on Instagram. Many of you also listen to the show and know us and aren't on Reddit. Big takeaways. One, less interview style episodes. We'll continue to do those. But you all wanted us to do more content, article, and uh, recent events focused episodes. So that's what we have for you today is more content, which that we've done background research, provide a more uh, systematic episode. Not to say that we won't be doing interviews anymore, but there were several, I guess, conversations about how like the meat of the interviews, like where it takes getting into segment one, then segment two, then finally the research, like maybe we'll condense that down a bit and just get right into the meat of it, I think was another thing. Yeah. So we'll change those up a little bit. The other one is a big critique was for those that aren't archaeologists, early career in the CRM, that some of our episodes feel very much like you are at a partner's work party and you don't know what's going on. So we're going to do more to explain, define terms, theories, contexts, the content that we are talking about. Yeah. There was one other thing. Oh, right. If you didn't see the Reddit post about our asking for criticism or what could we be doing better, we also posted it to Instagram. If you don't use either of those platforms, feel free to shoot us an email if you have any suggestions. We're not going to change like who we are. We're not going to post an episode that we don't find fun or entertaining, but we want to make sure it's accessible. We want you to be able to be like, hey, I know this podcast and send it to my friends and not have to be like, well, I mean, skip five through 44 and get to 50, (laughs) you know, to like do their episode. Like we want you to be able to be proud of a podcast you can send to people. And if you do insinuate that we did a hate crime or or, or something of that nature, when we ask you to please provide a timestamp, please be able to say, oh, it's at this timestamp and not that you can't bear to listen to it again uh, because you made it up. Uh, (laughs) Don't do that. that. That comment was fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's not productive. We're we, we're generally looking for criticism and and trying to better because we want this podcast to evolve and grow, and that involves taking real looks at what we do and how we do it, and we want to be more accessible to everyone. But like everyone else said, we are not changing. We're still going to be ridiculous. That's that's the brand. Yeah, yeah, that's the brand. Dude, this, it, this is what you get. We're not changing that. We're just going to do our research a little bit more. So we're not going to, you know, we tried this more content and, and factually based stuff in the past and we did it poorly with Revolutionary Boys 1 
Then we had to do a full second episode to correct what we said the first time. And that really burnt us out, probably because one, we hit the Revolutionary War, which a bunch of people really know about, and they grilled mm-hmm. us. And we got kind of like, well, well, let's not do that again. So, but with this this latest round of like really asking you guys, because the three of us have really gotten burnt out from this and fundamentally sometimes bored of yeah. the podcast. And we, we, were, we needed something to do. And we felt like, because there's Listen no to, feedback at all for us yeah. to know like how we're doing other than numbers. <laughs> exactly. And our and our numbers have kind of stayed stagnant. And after listening to both Chris and Rachel's feedback on our annual review, Reddit and Instagram, and, and we've gotten plenty of emails and DMs and it's been fantastic. The outpour of, of support and the big one, more focused episodes that have research behind it. So today we're going to do one on probably the beginning of a little, little mini series on the history of archaeological thought and theory in an American context. Which, if that sounds boring to you, is not. It's very fascinating and it will help understand a lot more about archaeology. Yes, exactly. Because the history of the field is is pretty fun. There's lots of lots of racism, but, you know, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Be prepared to be uncomfortable. (laughs) Like it's like if you didn't know archaeology was it was a colonial field and has its deep roots in colonialism. It's not like physical anthropology, which is now bioanthropology. If you want to take a trip down holy shit lane, let's just say like Hitler and the Third Reich were inspired by 1930s American physical anthropologists. Like they were like, how do we do what they did to the Native Americans, but better? And hashtag that was the final solution. And Those are uncomfortable. They are uncomfortable. <laughs> and if you're uh, someone who is currently, where I get this on TikTok and Instagram all the time, oh my God, another millennial talking about race over at board. Like they're not going to listen to this anymore. This is one of those times where it's like, when we're talking about that kind of stuff, you might want to listen because it's yes. like where that comes from. Our, our uh, discipline was the one to identify that race is a social construct that has that has biological consequences as we see with the enslavement and forced reproduction of American and uh, not American Indian of uh, American enslaved peoples. I've so, seen the Paramount plus in uh, the new show. What new show? The, the, there's a, the, I haven't seen Yellowstone. I almost saw the prequel, but now there's a, a second prequel before Yellowstone with Harrison Ford in it. Oh, and the 1920s one. Yeah. The first scene was just some indigenous girl being beaten by a nun. And I was like, yeah, I'm out <laughs> like you guys watch it. <laughs> <laughs> that also happened as a consequence of some of these things. So like early American archeology span and anthropology is rife with colonial and racist doctrine. And the field has like 96% moved away from that. Yeah. We got some stragglers. There's some holdouts, people that will, (laughs) they're the kind of people that are going to die typing on their desk and will be identified by the smell radiating out of their office. Like those are the ones, like once, (laughs) once they're gone, you know, but anyways, uh, Uh, one last thing I would like to say before before we hop in, it was brought to our attention that I, and, uh, I guess by extent Connor in the episode that we were in, in which we did not use a racial slur, I say like entirely too much. And when I went and edited my presentation i gave the other day i was like man if i drank every time i said like i'd be blackout so (laughs) if you're drawing the car if you're in the on the drive today driving take a sip every time carlton says um says like every time connor says um says like and every time i say um and says like and uh you will be pretty caffeinated if you're at home listening to this where you have an alcoholic beverage I warn you, please be in your house, put your keys in a bowl and strap in because <laughs> I'm trying to get better at it. Uh, but we, we will try. Yes. I have found that when I take the Bob Kelly approach, 
where if I slow down and pause, I don't say my, my verbal crutches. But when I get worked up or my mind starts running, that's when mm-hmm. um, comes out a lot more. Um, as I told David and Connor, because we talked about this before, I had a professor, Dr. Gilbert at Radford University. And I think it's the class was something 201, but it's one of those stupid welcome to college classes you have to take that aren't part of your major. And it was public speaking. This guy from uh, New Orleans got polio before they had the vaccine. So he was, he was in a wheelchair cool cat spent most of his life as lawyer but this asshole had one of those like hotel reception bells on his wheelchair and he pavlov dog the fuck out of us breaking bed (laughs) yeah he you know he anytime someone used a verbal crutch he would ring it and and for a very long time when someone says that kind of stuff they use verbal crutches I, i heard it and I wasn't really aware of how bad David said it until we got that comment. I listened to it. And now all I hear is, is when like I do it. It should be a Geneva, con- Geneva Convention. Problem. It was a war crime. What that man yeah. did was a crime <laughs> against humanity for everyone in that class. And everyone from Radford had Professor Gilbert knew exactly what we we're talking about. So we're, we're going to move oh, away from I met me on the last episode. <laughs> oh, yes. No, that was a that was a crime against humanity. If there was a Cards Against Humanity card, it'd be David's use of, of like, but to the archaeology. So as, as we mentioned, archaeology has its roots in colonialism. Particularly, we need to delve on back to a time of pigeon poop powdered wigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, founding daddy kind of stuff. Like way back when. <laughs> uh, it's, what's his name? It's. It's, it's Jay Brad. Brad. It's yeah. Jay Brad. Shout daddy. Out it's Jay Brad. If you, we got to get him on the show. <laughs> just. <laughs> Um, anyway, archaeology. So contextually, Europeans, Mediterranean folks have been exposed to each other for a long time and knew about existing cultures. There's a very much Judeo-Christian background to a lot of understanding of the differences between people across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. As Europeans are finding a way to circumnavigate or circum circumvent the Silk Road and the holdings of people in the Middle East, China. Circumvent by circumnavigating. Yes. Ah, Circumvent by circumnavigating. Title of the episode. Yes. Europeans were trying to basically something to do with sailing that there was a lot of, of, of line of sight trying to keep the African coast in line. And if you lost sight of the coast, you'd basically, you're traveling south across paralleling Africa. If you don't make a, a pretty critical left turn, you're going to Antarctica and you ain't coming back. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you're just, you're just gone. So some Portuguese dude was able to figure this out Gal. and, and, and oh. get around uh, Africa to the, to the it, East coast. It was Bernal Diaz, right? Am I, am I right in that? I don't know. I should know. Cause I just saw his monument in Portugal for the SHAs. And I got, I got a whole Diaz was a Spanish conquistador, different guy. I I got a whole history of, of Portuguese exploration. That wasn't John Cavan. Magellan. No, no. Magellan. Magellan. Magellan? He served and navigated. There's a person yeah, who did he, the Cape of Good Hope. Well, he, didn't, he didn't finish it. He died in, in Java or something like that, in Papua New Guinea. Oh, he was and, eaten, uh, I believe, in yeah, Tahiti. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he didn't make it home. The ship did and his crew did. He got the credit. Good for them. <laughs> Bartholomew Diaz. I was close. Okay. And as they are 
coming in contact with cultures wildly different from themselves. They're trying to understand their place in the world, specifically in a Judeo-Christian context, the Bible, Genesis. They have Christopher Columbus, who is sailing 1492, the ocean blue. The Europeans are kind of late to realize North and South America exist, as, as we're starting to learn now. And the kid died thinking he was in Japan. I th- No, he went back a couple of times. He figured it out. Well, he still, they were like, bro, this is Cuba. And he was like, no, this is Japan. Well, yeah, Japan. There, there was, yeah, it was a whole whole deal. Yeah. They were trying to make sense of a lot of this stuff. So really, as Wiley and Sabloff 1993 call it, this is the speculative period, which is like 1492 to 1840, in which everyone's trying to figure out Europe's place in the world and understand these global cultures and societies and how they fit to one another. They're reconciling their worldviews essentially with yeah. what the new information that, that's that's coming out is that they're they're interacting and seeing all these new things and they're like, what the fuck? But the one yeah. thing that doesn't change, the Europeans are always on top. <laughs> like that, that is that is never that never changes. They're just trying to rank everyone else below European society because they're like, we're the pinnacle. Where do all these other savages lie on the totem pole? Like that's what they're trying to figure out. And so that really doesn't change up until like the 19th, 20th century, which is, which is still yeah. sad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As Connor said, and what's, what's important about this, these early expeditions are being funded by royalty, rich white guys who are going across the globe. Their worldview is coloring this aspect. And they're also coming in with the framework of, of trying to categorize people and cultures in relation to Europeans. So they're, they're trying to figure out where everyone lies, what is a possible relationship. So that's where we start seeing instances of the Tower of Babel being used, which is biblical event in which what the Tower of Babel is broken, falls or something, and everyone mm-hmm. gets different language. Yeah. These other people are the results of the lost tribe of Israel, the 13th tribe, or one Kangaroos that we see... were just omitted from Noah's Ark. Yes. Like, well, how did they... Penguins, what are those? <laughs> as well as... You also see things of like, well, black people are the children of Cain. Like, they're really trying to, in this sense, like, understand the world through the Bible, which which doesn't work. And really, it's not until the 19th century in the 1800s when we have other fields of science becoming more institutionalized. We start seeing these other things. But but one of the products of this antiquarianism, which are these are they're not even archaeologists. It's what precedes archaeology. Antiquarians are the one people going across the globe pilfering things and bringing them back to Europe. For curiosity cabinets, which are basically just imagine a shelf in your house and a rich white guys dude with stuff across the world. They bring people over. British Museum has a, a super sick whole yeah. room of the museum that's just a curiosity cabinet. Yes. They're Not smoking sure. opium with their other rich white guy buddies and showing the cool stuff that they've collected. I took this from a hunter in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He was saying something. I don't believe it was anything about God. So I shot him. And took his things. So that's when we start seeing institutions in the 19th century, like the British Museum, the first culture-specific museums in turn Italy, which I just visited, and it's all about Egypt. Italy had a huge fascination with Egypt. Actually, in fact, when we talk about nationalism, which comes into play later, the Kingdom of Italy, the United Kingdom, fun fact, the United States has been a country longer than Italy has. They really tried to tie themselves to Egypt. Like the Holy Roman Empire, the czars, mm-hmm. how everyone tried to tie themselves to Rome. The Italians try to do so through Egypt. And so there's a lot of that going on. But out of this, we get the fun Italian circus strongman, Balzoni, who Dino. is... 
Tarantino um, <laughs> part of these excavations ransacking of Egypt in which he is instrumental in getting this very famous statue of Ramses II, Pharaoh Ramses II. I think it's, a, it's called a bust, technically. A bust, yes, okay. of the sand. And present for this event is Percy Shelley, who writes a very famous poem about the event, which is read by Brian Cranston for the season, the final season of Breaking Bad. Bob Kelly plays this in his intro to archaeology class at the University of Wyoming, and we have it for you now. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Safe to say that was a bop. That is a bop. I haven't saved my iPod. My iPod. iPhone. <laughs> Jesus. Talking about archaeology. Of yeah. right. Next my iPad, my iPad mini? What, or what was the little? My, my iTouch. My, your shuffle? My shuffle. Yes. No, my iTouch. Man, I forgot about that. Yeah, they were the precursors. So... A lot of that's going on. It's not specific just to Egypt. This is when the Elgin marbles, well, really the part, the Parthenon marbles are taken out of the Parthenon of, of Greece and brought to the British Museum. So this is really a time of not only of European intellectuals trying to understand the world around them and categorize cultures, but also bring a lot of these objects across the globe back for not really study, but really to show off. And it's it's a product of imperialism, fundamentally. It's a product of early antiquarianism is very much aligned with colonialism, imperialism, and a lot of other isms that make us very uncomfortable to learn about today. And they're just the billionaires. Of, but yeah, my, my bad, you go. And on that note, we will continue in the next segment talking about the 19th century, which is gets a little better. We're, we're making steps towards less colonialism and racism, but we're still kind of in that period. So we'll catch you in the next segment, episode 140 of a Life in Ruins podcast. And welcome back to episode 140 of Life in Ruins podcast. We're going to pick right back off around the same time as the 19th century, right? Which is the 1800s. There are some other issues that are popping up as they relate to colonialism and imperialism. So there's there's two case studies that we want to take a, a gander at real quick. We got to talk about Tommy J. Good old, good old Thomas Jefferson. Real TJ. TJ. So, Inventor of the swivel chair, connoisseur of pimento cheese. Most ordered thing on his logs, pimento cheese. Well, he also smuggled wine to, uh, or grape seeds to America. That was a big no-no. And oh. he smuggled them by, you know, like that, those like really poofy sleeve ends they used to have. Hmm. He like unsewed them, threw a bunch of grape seeds in there, sewed it back up, and that's how he smuggled it. American ingenuity. 
Don't they say it? One World War Two. All all of our founding daddies were were pirates. At founding daddy, <laughs> it's Jay Brad. Founding daddy. So, do you want me to just lay it out? Lay it out, David. So Thomas Jefferson, uh, we can kind of consider him the father of American uh, archaeology in a way. The founding daddy, excuse me, because he oversaw the excavation of mounds uh, in his in his yard, essentially at Monticello. And he, he dissected those mounds and, and learned what they were. But was it was it him digging the mounds? Carl? No, 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 no. It was his, it was the enslaved people, mm. Africans that he owned did that. So he oversaw. Did he get dirty? No. The six foot four, socially awkward guy did not get his hands dirty. And the reason why this was done is as we get to talk about colonialism again. As the states in Canada are being colonized by European powers to come across monumental architecture in the form of earthen mounds, they don't know what they are. They think the contemporary indigenous populations, there's no way in hell they could they could move dirt to make piles of dirt. Just it was well beyond their intellect. And so this is what we call the mound builder myth in which this mm-hmm. was used to justify one, the extermination of American Indians because they didn't. European colonists and Americans, Canadians did not believe American Indians could have done that. So they must have killed the people who did do it, the mound builders. They, the, uh. the contemporary Native Americans must have killed them all. And if we kill them, it's, it's fine. Also, no one knew how long the Americas had been occupied. The prevailing theory is at this time, the Americas prior to European colonization – Really, people hadn't been there longer than a thousand years. So, like, really, like, no one was there before 500 Common Era. TJ has his slaves systematically, that's the key word, systematically excavate the mounds to see the strata. And, and he was able to find European goods mixed with indigenous pottery and goods. And then he could, he could see the, the context of cultural continuity between the outer layers, which had European stuff, to the inner layers, which had pre-European contact. And he was like, no, these are the same people. They made these. This wasn't too hard. Thomas Jefferson, everybody, he was able to systematically, ex- like first use of that we know of a systematic excavation. Yeah. Now, that's not just to an American context. We have to throw the British under the bus again. Do Hang on. Just do we wonder, do you think someone else did that before him too, but he was the only literate person to do it? And like, got it, or like, not, I shouldn't say literate, like person that had notoriety to get that published, I guess. There's like a history of the Mormon church. Hold, hold with me. <laughs> Pilfering American Indian mounds was like a big business back in the day. So mm. a lot of people used to do that and sell them as curiosities. And the founder of the Mormon church was a part of that in new England. Like that's his family did that uh-huh. for a long time. So systematically, I don't know. Like you said, TJ was, was one of the only ones to write it down or one that we actually know who wrote it down. They might be in some library somewhere yeah. in you know, Rockford, Connecticut. And we just don't know. Yeah. But this, but this also ties to like the larger world in general and science and things. So yeah. you're, you're seeing uh, Lyell, Thomas Lyell publish on his principles of geology, where we're really starting to understand the laws of superposition and the idea that geologically things have been happening basically the same for millennia and years. So a lot of this stuff is all interconnected to this kind yes. of expansion in science and understanding of things. Enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. the quote unquote enlightenment. Yeah. So Lyell is like law of superposition, geologic layers on top are younger than the ones on the bottom. 
through a lot of that we're exploring like wow you know the grand canyon that must be very fucking old for that to take place because the same processes that happened today take place in the past so we have lyle doing that we have darwin figuring out in the origin of species uh he's able to figure out one of the aspects of evolution natural selection if he doesn't coin evolution i think we've talked about that in a previous episode haven't we like we went on the very last word of the book is evolved and that's it yes Um, which i think that's that's just pigeons and that's a later edition too. He uses the word evolution or evolved in like a third or fourth edition. It's evolved, but then he got flack for it. So he changed it to and like breathed by the creator. Or it was like originally breathed into a few forms or into one, but then he got flack for that. So he made it originally breathed by the creator into a few forms, a different one. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's what it was. So there's in the sciences, we have all these different people in the, in the 19th century, like figuring out all these different laws, realizing the age of the earth is much larger, much longer than a couple thousand years. And this idea that the earth is only 6,000 years old as, as prosthesized by some Christians, that's not in the Bible anywhere. I think it was like a monk, right? Like it was, yeah, it was a, oh, what's his name? It was yeah, a monk who did like some calculations that were clearly off. And he was like, well, Adam and Eve must've been around 6,000 years ago. He didn't have enough um, RAM. Yeah. It was just not happening. Um, but also at this time is when we find uh, Thomas Jefferson, this relates to the, the, megaphone in france we were going to talk about yes Um, thomas jefferson when lewis and clark set out to go west was like hey there's these big bones and they were sloth bones and he's like you might want to be careful because this big creature like lives out there and it's something we haven't seen before but he understood it was something like larger and i don't think he knew if it was like old or not so there's a couple things going on uh, at the same time right so real quick Americans weren't the only ones doing mound builder debate kind of shit. The British came across the same thing at Great Zimbabwe, which is a site in East Africa, megalithic structure. They didn't believe that current African populations could have built those things because at this time, Europeans are under this assumption that cultural evolution is just straight. Like once you build something or you reach a certain technological level, you keep doing that, which is kind of weird because that's what the Renaissance was about. This realization that the rise and fall of civilizations, right? Yeah. Reinforced by Sid Meier's. Yeah. The but. whole, yes, absolutely. So they're under this, this assumption that once you start doing monumental architecture, you don't go back to it. And they're also using a lot of this to justify. So they come across these great things, structures on the landscape or cultures in the past. Can't believe that the original people who are living in a different life way than, than what they see on the landscape and say, well, they must've killed the old people. So it's okay for us to kill them because they have done it. So like, there's this really fucked up racial justification and colonial justification behind all this. Do you want to, do you want to delve into like the specifics of Tyler and Morgan and stuff like that? Yeah. I, I, yeah. So when do they come up with that? So Taylor and Morgan, so around the same time in the 1800s as, as people are coming across New things. New things. So the sciences are like in geology and biology are coming across new things. Cultural anthropologists or earlier cultural anthropologists, ethnographers are coming up with their own, like really social scientists are coming up with ways to classify and define people. So one of the early ones is by this guy named Thompson, who's Danish. He comes up with the three age system, the stone age, bronze age and iron age and classifies groups into those. One of the more famous cultural and social forms of evolution are from um, Lewis Henry Morgan, Lewis Henry Morgan. And who's Taylor? What's Taylor's first name? Bartholomew. Ed, Ed, Edward Tyler. Edward Tyler. Yeah. Both by Morgan and Bartholomew. 
Thank you, David. They come up with savagery, barbarism, and civilization. That's where the terms savages and barbarians and the civilized folk come up with. Now, out of all these different social classifications that are presented, Europeans are always in the civilized folk. Like they're they're the pinnacle. Like there's no getting better. Yes. Who, who would have thought? Everybody else is below them, and they're trying to figure out like, okay, where do these other people lie? So that's where a lot of these classifications of people come up with. There's this really, and if you look at like the history of anthropology, they're always trying to classify people. And usually there's like, they do the rule of three. It has to be three. But as the field develops professionally, as we continue to try to fucking classify things, there's never a one size fits all rule and the classifications keep, it looks like a, a crazy March madness chart of classifications that they just yeah. keeps getting bracketed, bracketed subcategorizations. And like the field is still like that today. Like if you look at modern archaeological taxonomy, it's a fucking mess that no one ever wants to tackle because it's, yeah. it, we all just kind of use it and know like everything's a goddamn exception. And, but like no one wants to go to the work of redoing it like at all. So it's really interesting because Thompson is focusing on his like stone, bronze and iron age specifically on Europe and those kind of areas. And there's not a lot of values assigned to these things. You know, the classifications are very simple. There's technological changes as, as people gain more technology. Tyler and Morgan specifically went to other countries and did ethnology, ethnographies, and they come up with these very, very specific things to describe other people. So they use like savagery, barbarism, and civilization. So it's very value-laden because he's talking about these other cultures and not just like the predecessors to Europeans. So there's there, gotcha. there, there's always that under underpinning of that, uh, that racism that we're talking about. So it's um, like not European A or is it not European option C? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It, it's gotcha. Yeah, it's not, it's not great, but it's, I'm going to argue that it, it, maybe necessary is not the right term, but this is like the beginnings of trying to understand culture systematically. It's still very much done. It's a Eurocentric and ethnocentric worldview. Yeah. This is kind of like early scientific method because people continue to like reframe and criticize this technique to, to be broader, 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 broader. This is just the foundations of it. It's not fantastic, but it started somewhere, and that's where a lot of this social evolution starts from. And, and one of the big underpinnings of this, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's this form of social construct or social classification, it, it goes up. You start as a savage, you become a barbarian, and then you move to civilized. And there's no moving back or skipping a phase. It's very much you're going up. Unilinear as they as the, yeah, the term yes. for it, yeah. Which we know today is is not true. And thinking about culture linearly is is wrong. And yeah. so for our listeners, you just as we'll get to in a later episode when we talk about like modern day classifications, categorizations, or understanding of the breadth of human civilization and culture through time and space. There's a lot of ebb flow and movement between these different spaces and like, what do they ultimately mean? Really it's for archeologists, the ability to, upon knowing what something generally falls into the ability to understand what that classification 
means in terms of what you can expect to see in that culture. And then you still have to do the fine grained details. There's no one size fits all to this. Mm-hmm. No, but and it's not, but, it's not as simple as evolution as we see in, in, in science, you know, it's not humans are complicated and we don't evolve in one sort of way. So it's that, that the evolution part is slowly dropped as yeah. you get into it because it's, it, it, we, we aren't like that. I mean, we have evidence of people creating mounds, which is supposed to be like cities and being awesome. And then eventually switching out of that and going back to, you know, basic farming and things like that. It's not it just, it's just not the reality of the situation. Right. Yeah. People, human cultures at Pokemon hey. fundamentally human culture. And it, yeah. It's not Pokemon. And, as we see through time and space, it really isn't till like the organized state when people can't not revert to something simpler. People yeah. throughout time and space that we've seen through the breadth of human history do not like being controlled. They fucking abhor taxes and do their best to avoid it. And if they can see a way to what we used to call what we call now like voting with your feet, just leaving. People did that. Like people don't like being told what to do. It's really not until like modern day that we can't just not do that. Yeah. There's, a, there's kind of a big shift that we see specifically attributed to Franz Boaz, and we will talk about that in the beginning of the next segment. Welcome back to episode 140 of the Life and Ruins podcast. This segment, we're going to talk about Daddy Daddy Boaz. Papa Franz. The father of American anthropology, or do you go archaeology? I'd say anthropology. He is the, the parent of Sorry. the parent of American anthropology. Papa Franz is what he's colloquially referred to in American anthropology, largely seen as the founder <laughs> of, anthro- of, of American anthropology. He's the one that creates this four fields approach in anthropology. This is why archaeology in America is under anthropology and not history, which fundamentally separates us from the limeys. Let's go see the apes. <laughs> Do you know why that is, guys? Because I have the answer or a answer. Uh, well, tell us, David. I'm actually curious. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, Boaz. I actually hear your voice for once. <laughs> Boaz was one of those kind of like Einstein and Oppenheimer that came over later. That was because of the war. He was an immigrant. For his family was like, yeah, it's probably let's get out of Germany. And they came he over immigrated here. Emigrated from Germany, David. Emigrated from Germany, sorry. Emigrated from Germany, right? So his family got here and he had a degree in physics, which I was I always find this fascinating. He had a degree in physics, uh, or I believe a PhD in it. He might have got the PhD once he got here. But because of that, he had a scientific mind. And when he started doing anthropology and like wanted he was curious about indigenous American things. He applied that scientific method to understanding cultures, and it really separates Boaz and like American anthropology from the rest of the world's archaeology kind of programs. Is it's not so antiquarian; it's not just like collecting antiquities. It's he went to systematically study people, and I think yeah. that's like why it's such a fundamental change, you know? Yeah, and he so he goes out and studies with the the Baffin Island Inuit and also worked with cultures in the Pacific Northwest. But he did get his doctorate in 1881 in physics and he also studied geography. So that's that's the thing. Sorry, geography just to too. clarify. Okay. No, he just studied it. He didn't get a degree in it. It's just maybe it was a minor. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay, just <laughs> cut that shit out. All right. So he studied with different indigenous groups and and went out and did research and the, the really important thing, his theory, 
and his ideas that comes out of this is called historical particularism, which is in direct opposition to cultural evolution and these kind of larger theories that Tyler and Morgan had proposed. I think it was cultural relativism. Historical particularism is what Boaz was pretty much a proponent of, but he, he, he pushed for cultural relativism as well. Yes. And historical particularism is that each culture has its own intricacies and complexities to itself. It doesn't have to be related or evolved from another. I I think is, is that's right. It's particular in its own sense. And the only way to understand cultures is to study the history of that particular group. It's not a comparative thing. Gotcha. And that, 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 that cultural values and the cultural elephantism is cultural values are going to vary by specific groups and cultures. So he's, yes. he, he's like, he's just telling like Tyler and Morgan to like fuck off. Yeah. He's, he's saying with cultural relativism is like, everyone's special. Everyone's unique. Stop comparing everyone. Like you just need to take the context of this culture and see it for what it is as it being off awesome on its own. Like stop comparing it. He also is like really big opponent of, what was that thing where you measured craniology, craniomorphology? Oh, phrenology. Yeah. So not only so not only was he like tackling archaeology with historical particularism, cultural anthropology with cultural relativism, but like with physical anthropology, he was like demonstrating like, hey, skull shape is pretty malleable, and is also dependent on diet and environment. That this is not a way like craniometrics or, or morphology is garbage. So Franz comes across the ocean and lives in the Americas. <laughs> And he he wildly he comes in with the, these backgrounds and and is able to upend these long held notions and he creates this four fields approach of anthropology and really utilizing archaeology as a way to study human culture in the past through its material remains rather than in a historical context. And he has some pretty amazing students that we'll get on in a later episode. So like A. L. Krober, I'm actually I one of my colleagues is Krober's granddaughter. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Like we Max have a, Kerber? I forget their name. I, I don't I see them. They're son. not really in the office. Yeah, they they so we have the one of their grandchildren anthropologists here at Indiana University. Hmm. Ruth Margaret Benedict, Mead. Sapir. Yeah, Margaret Mead. Sapir of the Sapir Wharf hypothesis, which we we'll do. Yeah. Love the Sapir Wharf hypothesis, but yeah. Some people don't. You might want to not mm. say you love it. <laughs> I well, it's like one of those things, I guess, to contextualize, like there are some theories and and materials that we learned in linguistic anthropology under Pam, Dr. Pamela Ennis that were just really tracked and I really liked Sapir Wharf. I know there's there's issues with it, but it was also pretty f- you, it was used somewhat in um Arrival, right? Yeah. Well, I th- so and the cool thing is and, th- and something we did as part of our intro to archaeology, I think, is we traced our heritage and we've talked about this before, our academic heritage, our pedigree, which all eventually leads to Boaz. All roads lead to Boaz. All roads lead to Boaz. So he is, he's not a perfect character. He's a product of the 19th and 20th century. So there are some things. Shrunken heads. Yeah, there's, there's, we all got shrunken heads in our closets. It's just kind of. He literally did. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's so, so we're, we, we want to give him the credit he is due, but also be aware that everything he did was not perfect. Right. It was 1875. You know, what can you and do? For, for the late 19th, early 20th centuries, his ideas about human culture 
both past and present were radically different than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And and without him, you don't see the growth like between him and 40 years, 50 years later, do we have a radical shift and it shifts in the field without him, you know, prior, prior to him for like 200, 300 years, everyone's thinking relatively the same about Europeans are on top. He comes in as a European from Germany where they produce white people. And is like, you know what guys, this is not correct that we need to appreciate and study cultures for what they are. It's cool to compare and contrast, but not in order of a rank based system. And he passes that down to his students who take that and, and, and continue to, to grow that. And really, if we look at these these anthropological pedigrees, like your family tree, within three generations, the field is radically shifted from what he was thinking. Absolutely. You know, and, and over the breadth of if you take a theory class in archaeology, things really ramp up post-World War II, mm-hmm. especially after the horrors of World War II are seen across the globe and it's a pretty rapid shift like i think it's like damn near what every two decades there's a paradigm shift within archaeology and now say. we're at a point where it's like it's as we we'll get on to this in a later episode really prior to the 1990s archaeological theory and anthropological theory is seen as like that's your glasses frame of reference for how you see the world like you apply everything you do through this theory whereas now i'd argue theory is a toolkit like in order to answer the question you want to you you apply the theory that's going to help best suit that like not everyone some people are still ardent marxists and that's all they do is like marxist archaeology and that's how they see the glen the the world is through means of production the proletariat bourgeoisie most which of us are not like that. Which applies to like large scale societies and stuff. That's a great way to understand large scale societies. You're talking about hunter gatherers and Marxism. You got to separate the trowel from the means of production. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. it depends on what you're doing and what your answers are. Yeah. If you're looking at energy production and consumption, cool. Marxist approach, that's probably going to help you more so than behavioral ecology. And to Connor's point, behavioral ecology, when all you have is a few stone chips and some bone behavioral ecology is all you kind of can go by because there's no Marxism really in an egalitarian foraging band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At so least how, you can suss out from rocks. One of the more interesting things that, that I've read recently, and this, this is not a tangent, the dawn of everything has a really actually very interesting, not critique, but perspective as to hunting and gathering societies. Is that Dawood Hari? That author? No, that's Sapiens. That's Sapiens. Yeah. It, it kind of talks about how, the likelihood that there is a vast and complex difference between hunting and gathering populations, but we just can't see it. We never will, but just it like helped me made me like rethink hunting and gathering populations more so than just the behavioral college approach. Can you prove it? No, but it's just How's a that? fun, it was just a fun read. It was just that's Graber and Graber and Wagner. Is that the one? Yeah. 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 Winrow. Yeah. It's, it's I'll cool. Okay. It does. I'll have to give it a look. The first three chapters really dive into like, the noble savage and some of these concepts that we were talking about, like the early case studies and events that led to um, social scientists talking about really the, the, the uh, being exposed to indigenous societies without Kings and how they brought back to Europe was kind of this like catalyst for like the French revolution. Others were like, wait a minute, there's people that don't 
have kings and queens and are doing just fine it, better than ours yeah we should be doing that you know like it, so there's this really cool dialogue that talks about how really the being exposed to indigenous communities across the globe that did not have ranked societies oh. challenged european worldviews of like wait this is what we were taught like we can do this viva la revolution so it was, it's it's a really interesting aspect we're reading yeah. it at for i guess we have like an anthropology department reading club it's like the That's whole department cool. we're all reading it yeah i got roped into being one of the leaders of it it's it's a fun time it's been really cool to to talk about and they talk about the ice age it's a fun time for those that are yeah. for those that don't want to read trigger god forbid most archaeologists don't want to read trigger or First wiley trigger. and sabloff for the, um, for the non- or or the the primary sources where you get into bordeaux or you oh, get into god. some so this book will probably be a good analog so you don't have to go through and suffer i'm sorry suffer through bordeaux or Foucault. Francois Vaudel. The, the yeah. goddamn French. Jesus. That, like, it just doesn't translate. The translations don't. They don't work. Yeah, they don't. Get, and they they just aren't, they aren't readable to me. My brain yeah. just, I, I, can't, I can't get it. So there are, there are really good textbooks out there. There's good books that we'll probably throw some in the description here and also links to what we've been looking at. So that's kind of, I think... I don't know. On a future episode, we'll get into the students of Boaz, which are also very interesting and very fun. And you can we really should, kind of we should end real quick with what are the four fields, real quick, so we can leave people with a product of what we talked about today. Archaeology, what was physical anthropology, now it's called biological anthropology, linguistic anthropology, and cultural anthropology. Those are the four fields, four primary fields that make up anthropology. Each one has its own subcategories that go on forever. And a lot of them overlap more so than you would think. How do linguistic anth and archaeology overlap? They do go. That's the beauty of our four fields approach is that we're all, we all have degrees in anthropology. We were anthropologists first. I really have to say like the university of Wyoming's four field approach is like one of the better four fields programs they really you you leave with a master's from wyoming you're you're a four fields anthropologist like yeah i'm 100 percent a proponent of that because they shouldn't be isolated and mm-hmm. i think that's something you'll you'll see overlap in everything and it's to understand humans you have to understand all f- four of those aspects yeah which includes our evolution primatology and biological anthropology anatomy osteology then you get into linguistics, which is how you use language, not just how they develop. Cultures yep. can be anything. Archaeology can be anything. And then, yeah, you you learn a lot. It's like you plug into the matrix for like two years in grad school and you're like, well, I can't look at anything the same again. Yeah, and we've mentioned that on previous podcasts is that once you put this filter on your brain, you you think of things through anthropological lenses from, from here on out. It's never I can same. hear Tucker Carlson like shitting his pants right now, thinking that's the liberal agenda at work. Jesus. But, when I saw that uh, Taco Bell commercial from a year ago, when it was like the they were like Power Rangers or something defending their Mexican spices against monsters, I just wanted to fucking cry whoa. at that aspect of it. I, I know I bitched about this on an episode before, but like, yeah, you get a degree in anthropology, you're gonna suddenly hate most media that's present because you're like, well, that's fucked up. Well, that's racist. Well, Why no, is every woman say in that. a cleaning commercial cleaning and sitting down on the floor? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's like no. it's it it changes it for the better, I would argue. I would um, I would 100% agree. I think it's 
you get some truth and as much truth as you can in this fucked up world we live in. And and surprisingly, some people can go through like grad school in anthropology and still like be closed minded piece of shit people. <laughs> I went to school with a with a person that got their degree in in bio like in physical anthropology and still did not believe in evolution. Wow. Crazy. And on that note, thank you for listening to us. Please leave us comments, send us emails. We want to know how we are doing and we want to get better. We want to, for you guys not to suffer through this. So thank you for listening to us and we appreciate all of you. And if you're still listening to the show on the All Shows feed, please switch over, subscribe to our show individually. It helps us grow our platform. You guys have been doing better. I'm going to tell you, I can look at the numbers and you guys are switching to our show. It's fantastic. Keep doing that, please. It helps us. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, it's just a Life Nerds podcast. Twitter, I think it's a Life Nerds pod. And if you don't mind, oh, text from Stefan Milo. How's Stefan doing? Just had a second baby. He's scheduling interviews for Portland. Anyway, SAAs will be at Portland. Uh, Oregon this year. I will be going. I don't know about you, Carlton or Connor. I think you're going. Yes. Yeah. Car- Carlton has to go. So we will, uh, we'll see you guys there. We can't really do a booth cause that's like fucking two grand to do. But if you guys want to fundraise us to do a booth, we could do a live room's booth. If you don't want to, we'll see you at a bar. And on that note, yeah, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. The reviews only help us grow. And if you want to give us a straight up roasting in our emails about what you think or not roasting but you know what you think we could do better or some things that you would like to constructive. see constructive that's the word do do yep. the compliment sandwich hey love your show david needs to but. stop saying like however <laughs> i like these kind of episodes you know yeah and we just got a good, really good email recently about that and we it helped us to make sure that we are being more inclusive with our audience so because we don't get you. paid if it, like we can fucking quit this whenever we want yeah so, like, but we yeah want for sure guys, we do not make any money off this yeah, yeah. like no this We're is minus this is money a, minus money so much minus money and time. Yeah, a lot so like if you're going to give us criticism we want it but like give us a reason to quit <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like roast us yeah um, i did just, get an email or a facebook message from somebody about we needed to cover more crm and have more crm people on here because that is 90 percent of archaeology and that is a very fair statement so we will do that yeah. and with that note we are out <laughs>Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And as always, if you were able to make it to this part, you know what time it is. It is time for Connor's witty joke. What Hit serotonin them. do you have for us today? Hit that macho man. Oh, yeah. Did you hear about the kidnapping at school? Oh, Jesus. Uh, how long was he asleep for, Connor? It's okay. He woke up. Yeah, that's what I thought. Fuck off. We're doing another one. <laughs> Why do nurses like red crayons? Uh, I don't know, Connor. Because yeah. sometimes they have to draw blood. Oh, that's pretty good. That was good. I like that. That was the same. All right. I got to go to bed because I got PT in the morning. <laughs> that we were done. <laughs> <laughs>
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.